Let me tell you a story that some of you have heard before. I, Chuck has been telling us in our study of Anglicanism that actually it was Anglicans that first came to this country. That was in a place called Jamestown, Virginia. I was born and raised 50 miles away from Jamestown, Virginia. I have a first cousin who thinks that we have ancestors that were part of the Jamestown colony. So whether that's true or not, I come from a long multi-generational line of Anglicans. And because of that, growing up in my early years, we did Lent. And I did Lent, a particular memory that I have of doing Lent is while I was a paper boy, I started carrying papers at the age of 12. And of course, my mother, good Episcopal lady, taught us you have to give up something for Lent. You have to give up something you really like for Lent. Now, what I did when I carried papers was the milkman. In those days, there was a milkman. He had a truck. He came in the morning, and milk came in bottle jars. And the milkman would always have some jars of chocolate milk. Chocolate milk in those days, one quart, cost a quarter. And whenever I saw the milkman, I would buy a quart of chocolate milk. And when I got home, having finished my papers, I would have the chocolate milk while I read the morning paper. So I gave up chocolate milk for Lent. Palm Sunday was a big day. I made sure I saw the milkman on Palm Sunday, got my quart of chocolate milk, put it in the refrigerator, getting it nice and cold, ready for Easter morning when I could go back to chocolate milk. Because in Lent, you have to give something up, right? Why? Why is that such a big deal? Why did I have to give up my chocolate milk? I want to rethink that. So here we are in Lent. It's a fasting time, and we're supposed to give things up. Why do we have to do that? What's the meaning of all that? What's the context? So here is the first thing I want to say. In order to understand Lent, in order to understand this, in order to this, for this to make the sense that it needs to make, we must understand the overall flow of the Christian life. The overall flow of the Christian life. What is the Christian life all about? Christ on the cross made provision. The cross is a provision. What is it a provision for? First of all, it's a provision for our guilt to be removed. That's the first provision, for our guilt to be removed. But it goes further than that. On the cross, Christ made provision for the power of sin in our behavior to be broken. Because Christ came for sure to deliver us from guilt, but he came to deliver us from more than guilt. He came to deliver us from sin, the bondage of sin. And we will never be delivered from the bondage of sin until the power of sin in our behavior is broken, until we become free from the sin that has embedded itself so in our inner lives that we are in bondage to it. So Christ's cross made provision for guilt to be removed and for the power of sin in our behavior to be broken. This provision that Christ made on the cross must be accessed. We have to access it. The, the provision is there. It's a provision of grace. We could never, ever earn it. Never in a million trillion decades and years and centuries could we ever earn it. We have violated 
the God who created us. We have violated the intimate relationship that he created us to have. We have loaded onto ourselves guilt. We can never earn it. But it has to be accessed. God won't do it to us. God won't do it for us. God will only do it with us. So the will has to be in, in action. The will, the intent, the choices. The provision has to be accessed. How do we access the removing of our guilt? How do we do that? We bring our sin to the cross. Actually, dealing with guilt is the easiest part of accessing what Christ did on the cross. We bring our sins to the cross in prayer. Father, I have sinned against you. There is no excuse that I can offer. I can only acknowledge my guilt and bring my sins to the cross and trust the power of Christ's death on the cross to remove my guilt. What an awesome thing that's so built into the liturgy, central in the liturgy, is the provision for us to bring our sins to the cross. So that's how our guilt is removed. We need to do that once a day or sometimes more than once a day. It needs to be a part of our walk with God, the bringing of our sins to the cross. As we become aware, I have done this, I have said this, I have thought this, bringing it to the cross and receiving the provision of Christ on the cross for our guilt. Now, to break sin's power in our behavior is not a direct thing. It's a process. It's a process. It's a process that takes place throughout the Christian life. It's a process that we grow in. It's a process that has to do with formation because the Christian life is not in the end about what I do. It's about the person I become because what I do is an expression of the person I have become. So to break sin's power in our behavior is a process. It's a process of trusting or believing, but it's also a process of obeying. So, brothers and sisters, if we don't get these things right, we will be severely limited in our growth. So there is a form of theology out there where it's all faith. And we're not saying anything wrong with faith. We're not diminishing faith. But biblical faith is accompanied by obedience. So if I think faith is coming to God and saying, God, I, I by faith take your forgiveness, but I don't want to give up my sinful behavior. I'll just choose to keep that. So I'm going to choose to trust you for forgiveness, but I'm going to choose to keep my sinful behavior. That's not what God's offering. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is inherent in it. I can't really believe in Jesus without desiring and intending to walk with him in obedience. So here's the question we all have to face when we think about Lent, when we think about spiritual disciplines. How bad is it? How bad is the power of sin in my behavior? What is it actually doing to me? What are the actual consequences of the power of sin in my behavior? And how do I need to rearrange my life? Now, I just got an email three days ago, kind of email that every person here, I'm sure, has gotten. An old colleague, we go back to the 70s. We were co-laborers together on the mission field. He's a pastor in Atlanta. 
just got the email. He's been diagnosed with prostate cancer. So this is the deal. This is the treatment. Please pray. So we're praying. Now, the diagnosis of cancer means he's willing to rearrange his life in significant ways. Because if he doesn't deal with it, the consequences can be catastrophic. What about the addictions that are in our lives? What about the addiction to anger? What about the addiction to expressing contempt toward other people? What about the addiction to a doing, to succeeding, to money, to the lust of the flesh, etc., etc.? What about those addictions? What are those addictions doing? What effect are they having in our lives? You know, I've also shared before my dear father. I, I am so thankful for my father. I gained so much from my father. I don't know what wounded him. I don't know. But he was a wounded soul. And I watched him work his whole life. He was an intelligent man. He was a capable man. He never succeeded. Why? Anger. Anger. He would fly off the handle. He couldn't relate to other people. No matter how hard he worked, he went to church every Sunday. He read his Bible. I've got his Bible at home. All kind of notes in the Bible. He went to church. He read the Bible. But the addiction of anger profoundly influenced his whole life. He never came to understand how to access the provision that Christ made on the cross for the breaking of power of sin in my behavior. He never, ever understood that. Lord, have mercy upon us. This process of accessing Christ's provision for us is a rhythm. So there's a rhythm. The Christian life is permeated with a rhythm. Jesus taught it. The apostles taught it. Permeates the New Testament. Here is the rhythm. I choose to die to the self-life in order to be able to receive Christ's new life or life in the Spirit. That's the rhythm. I choose to die to the self-life. The thing that has put us in bondage is the self-life. The original sin in the garden was the self-life. Adam and Eve decided, rather than God being the center of their lives, they were going to make themselves the center of their lives, and they entered into the self-life. That brought destruction. And so all the ramifications of the self-life, self-will, self-centeredness, self-confidence, self-reliance, all of that, all of the things that damage us spring from the core of the self-life. That self-life must be laid aside. Why? So that I can receive the life of the risen Christ. It's the life of the Spirit. I lay aside the self-life that I might receive the new life. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. Laying aside the self-life, how do I do that? And here's another thing we've got to be careful with. There is a whole form of teaching out there that thinks, all I have to do is teach people the right thing to do, and their willpower can enable them to do it. That's not biblical. Where did that come from? Read the New Testament. My willpower alone is not powerful enough 
to counteract the negative, destructive effects of the self-life. So how do I do that? Here is where spiritual disciplines come in. You can call them spiritual practices. Where do I learn these spiritual practices? I learn them from Jesus. I learn them from our Judeo-Christian fathers and mothers. They've been practiced throughout the Old Testament, practiced throughout the New Testament, practiced throughout church history. Spiritual practices. What are some examples? Prayer is an example. Fasting is an example. Giving is an example. This is what Jesus was talking about in the gospel reading this morning. If you do these things in order to be seen by somebody else, there is no reward. What is this reward? Well, I like to think of it as there's no spiritual benefit. The minute I'm focused on what you think, I'm actually still in the self-life. The desire to impress you is an expression of the self-life. I have to lay the self-life aside and be focused on God. What does God think? And so my fasting, my giving, my prayer is done in the presence of God. And I just love it. Jesus says, go into your room and shut the door. Brothers and sisters, spiritual maturity takes place in secret. The formation of the soul takes place in secret. The formation of Moses' soul took place in secret. The formation of David's soul took place in secret. The formation of Elijah's soul took place in secret. The formation of John the Baptist's soul took place in secret. Luke 1.80 And John lived in the wilderness until the day of his appearing to Israel. Do you hunger for the stillness? Do you hunger for the secret place with God? In the secret place is where we find God. Once we find God, all of a sudden, what somebody else thinks doesn't feel so important anymore. It doesn't feel so desirable anymore. I found something a million times better, the presence of God. And so when we engage in spiritual practices, now Lent is a great time. What an awesome time Lent is. You know, there is such wisdom built into the liturgy and there is such wisdom built into the liturgical year. Lent is such a gift. And it's a gift that allows us to say, I'm going to take steps to set aside the self-life. Why? To make room for Christ's new life in me. Do you want more of the Holy Spirit? How do we go about getting more of the Holy Spirit? Fasting. What do I do when I fast? I make room for the Holy Spirit. Prayer, what do I do when I pray? I make room for the Holy Spirit. Solitude, what do I do when I go into quiet? I make room for the Holy Spirit. So the laying aside of the self-life, the motivation for doing that is to make room for the new life that Christ provided for us. And it's right there for us to receive. 